0: You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 75. How to ruin a decent Christopher Nolan movie. Today's proverb comes from Jean de la Brouillère. I'll read it twice. The pleasure of criticizing takes away from us the pleasure of being moved by some very fine things. Once more, the pleasure of criticizing takes away from us the pleasure of being moved. By some very fine things There is a pleasure which comes from Criticizing What is it? It's a feeling of superiority It's a feeling of Authority Although it ought to be said That there are many different ways To criticize And I would say that Grouping criticism by the level of critique or the severity of the critique is maybe a more effective way uh, of sorting out criticism than sorting it out by genre. Sometimes a critic demolishes a new work of art. And whether you're demolishing a novel or a film or an art show... The sort of criticism that aims at just completely mocking and exploiting the weaknesses uh, of a work of art is a is a very particular kind of criticism. To highlight the most embarrassing unoriginalities and flaws in a work of art uh, is a mode of thought that uh, deserves to be kind of contained or sorted unto itself so as opposed to comparing um, ten reviews of films it might be interesting to compare ten hit jobs ten uh, works of criticism that are uh, kind of triumphs of the critic over uh, the lifeless corpse of whatever new uh, and terrible film or novel or Um, Record is being addressed. So there's the sort of criticism that demolishes a work of art. There's also the sort of critic that fixates on some significant problem that an otherwise very fine work of art has. So uh, the critic might say, well, this is a fine film, but it was ruined for me by this one thing in it. And then this sort of uh, cursory glance is made of the film or the novel or the album's um, praiseworthy attributes. But it's it's all really just uh, in movement towards this significant problem. And the critic might even explain that this problem was not necessary to the work, that it could have easily been taken care of. And I find that sort of criticism If we're talking about criticism of new work New music, new films Is generally beneficial I, I like reading an article I like reading an essay Where someone takes some, sm- um, some small element of it to task Some comparatively small element That actually is quite big in the long run um, I think of, one of the, just one of the best film reviews I've ever read Uh, is Anthony Lane's review of The Talented Mr. Ripley. And hopefully there's a few Anthony Lane readers out there. You can read that review maybe online, but if you order Anthony Lane's book, Nobody's Perfect, you can find it in there. And, And Lane's critique of The Talented Mr. Ripley was the casting. And he makes the assertion that the film... Depends too heavily on getting actors to do things they're already good at. And that the film might have. Been more successful. If Matt Damon, who's cast as Tom Ripley. The sort of pale, pasty, quiet. um, Psychopath. And Jude Law. Who is cast as Dickie Greenleaf, uh, this um, um, shipping tycoon's ne'er do well son, spending his father's money in the Amalfi Coast, had switched places um, because Jude Law, very handsome, naturally plays the playboy. Matt Taman kind of pasty already And Lane spends a lot of the reviews Saying what if these two guys had switched places And the sort of film That he opens up as, as a possibility If the casting had been done better Is really sort of intriguing And he's not deeply critical Of the film He's not saying it's a, it's a terrible film Don't waste your time And he certainly highlights a few of the um, The film's better qualities But he spends most of his time on this Somewhat interesting idea Uh, that the casting was done on autopilot. An an interesting idea. I mean, I read that review for the first time, I don't know, 12 years ago. And and I've been struck by that sort of criticism ever since. But I mean, there's a pleasure in that. I'm sure there's a pleasure for Lane in writing a review like that. Um, Because he's not really demolishing the film. And he's not positing himself as this kind of authority over the film he's genuinely contributing something to the, the world of filmmaking and he's, he's putting forward this idea that a decent director might pick up on and think well maybe I can make a better film by switching the lead roles um, and getting the getting the handsome man to play the outcast and getting the pasty guy to play the playboy maybe that works out better maybe there's more to grapple with and then there's this sort of critic who admits that a work is good but wants to quibble with a few minor points points that he admits is minor and I think that this is really the worst sort of criticism it's the most selfish sort of critic Which means that there's really a greater pleasure to be had in nitpicky criticism than there is in any other kind of criticism. And I believe that there is more pleasure, there's more selfish pleasure to derive from a nitpicky review than from a hit job. Social media is awash with the sort of criticism I'm talking about. This nitpicky criticism. Comment sections are just full of this sort of thing. On Facebook, the sort of criticism shows up in comment sections, and the sort of comment I'm talking about opens with, sure, comma, but you neglected to mention da da dot, dot. Or this is good, but you should have addressed da. And the critic goes on to mention some. Relatively trivial issue that they happen to feel strongly about, and which may only be tangentially related to the subject in hand. And these sort of things often open up with this kind of very faint praise, like, good job, not bad. A criticism that opens with not bad, I don't know that it's really worth writing. This sort of criticism has more in common with graffiti than it does with intellectual work. The sort of nitpicky criticism I'm talking about is like a subtle way of saying, I could have written this, and if I had, I would have done a better job. And I want to say that the worst sort of offender on this, not just where it happens, I mean, where it happens is social media, but the worst sort of offender on this subject the subject of the nitpicky critic, is mid-level intellectuals writing reviews of books that are just a tear up from their own. And the same way that the middle class are in this precarious position where they're almost rich, but fear becoming poor, the mid-level intellectual's kind of in the same boat. The mid-level intellectual can taste that higher level, but fear's also fading into obscurity. So you know that you have... uh, You know you have an intellectual who's openly ambitious when they keep picking fights with people that are like 500 subscribers over themselves. I think I've talked about this before. This sort of critic often opens a critique of the work of somebody who's just a tear up with the with the claim that the book was good or pretty good but that I have a few small disagreements that really need to be addressed and the point of the review is not to get the audience to read the book and not to get the audience to avoid the book but for the audience to come away with nothing more than newly minted respect for the critic. I'm not suggesting that there's something wrong with a critic demolishing a new work. There's some pleasure to be had in that. There's some pleasure to be had in doing it, in reading it too. There's a young writer right now for First Things, a new writer, just has three essays for them, a fellow named Sam Chris. And he recently wrote a book review of a very fashionable. Um, kind of work of the new new age (laughs) Uh, the book's called Postcolonial Astrology Reading the Planets Through Capital Power and Labor and his um, demolition of this book in the article is just magnificent there's a link to that review on my blog sometimesgibbs.com and it's a delight to read um, because it's not a nitpicky sort of review It seems that Chris believes that the book has absolutely nothing to offer. Which is to say that there's no very fine thing that he's not taking pleasure from in demolishing the book. And so to go back to the quote, the pleasure of criticizing takes away from us the pleasure of being moved by some very fine things. And if you don't have a very fine thing on your hand, then take the pleasure of demolishing it. But... If the whole point of the review, if the whole point of criticizing it, is merely to uh, suggest to your readers that you could have done a better job, then you are missing out on something significant. And I don't know why people write these sort of reviews. Uh, The review that opens with, I thought this was really good, but I only want to talk about the ways that I'm smarter than this book, than this film, than this record. It's selfish. It's selfish. The pleasure of criticizing takes away from us the pleasure of being moved by some very fine things. Now, I should say that this is a quote about criticizing, and I've spoken of criticism up to this point, but not all criticism is critical. Not all criticism is, let me write a a review of this online. Some criticism is just talking, and I think that this really gets back to what's behind Lebrouillet's proverb, what's behind his claim. That there is a sort of pleasure that we get from talking about a thing and from gesturing at it and sharing our thoughts, but you often have to forego mm-hmm. deeper pleasures for the shallow pleasures of criticizing something. We're just talking about it, this need to talk about something, as though your ultimate obligation by something that's very fine is to say something about it, not to be moved by it, not to absorb it. We should note that the quote isn't, the pleasure of criticizing takes away from us the pleasure of some very fine things. The quote's about being moved by some very fine things. And there are plenty of people who encounter very fine things, talk about very fine things, but do it all with a spiritual posture that really precludes being moved by it. Because the cost of being moved by something, the cost of being moved by a fine thing, is silence. If you want to be moved by something, you've got to shut up. Being moved by it is a passive state it is a submissive state like consider the silence that usually follows the final note of a symphony there's this pause there's this pause where the last note fades and it seems as though the conductor is waiting for the note to just be completely gone and after you can't hear it anymore the conductor's still up there, they haven't turned around as though they can still hear it even though you can't and you're waiting and there can be I was at a concert recently where the the difference or the distance between that final note fading and the moment that the conductor turned around was oh, like two minutes, three minutes It was a long time if During that silence, the silence that that follows that final note There was someone in the crowd who broke that silence by saying Well, that really moved me You'd think, no it didn't It couldn't have possibly moved you If your first thought is about yourself It was not transportive It didn't take you anywhere it didn't take you anywhere that's going to last. I mean, maybe you forgot yourself while it was going, but the effect of the thing on you was so thin, so shallow, that the seconds it's, it's over, you're immediately thinking of yourself. Probably not a lot of people can do this, have the time for this, but man, one of the best ways of going to an art museum is to go alone. I tell students this before trips to art museums. I tell them, you're not going to be alone here. You're going to be, there's thousands of other people in the museum, and you're also going to be put into groups with your friends, and you're going to be tempted to talk through the entire thing. But I I insist on this. You will get more from this museum if, even though you're in a group, you try to do it like you're alone. Try to make yourself, I know you're with your friends. I know you're, you're with your classmates. I know that there's maybe 20,000 other people in the metropolitan today, but if you try to make yourself as alone as possible here, you will get so much more out of it. Don't talk. Don't say anything. Wait. We think talking is community, and we think that nothing matters more than community. That's why people talk so much. We do not believe that sanctification matters more than relationships. Man, listen to the way that modern people talk about relationships in this completely abstracted sort of way. Nothing matters more than relationships, keeping relationships, preserving relationships. I know that relationships are important, but if you can't conceive of something higher and better than a relationship, this incredible abstraction, you are never going to have a mystical encounter with God. If you don't understand that God does things outside of relationships with other people, our relationships with other people. Yes, God does things through our relationships with other people. But if you think that's the only way, then you are not going to shut up for the rest of your life. You're just going to be talking all the time or inciting other people to talk. The, the mystical encounter with God is dead to the modern man. We are too terrified by it. We have talked about personhood and community too much for these words to mean anything to us. So, if you go to an art museum for the first time, a Met, a like Cloisters, even the Guggenheim, even something as risable as the Guggenheim, make it a goal and not say anything about it for as long as you can. Hours, mm-hmm. days if you can manage it. And the pleasure of criticism isn't just in writing it. right? It, there's a pleasure in reading it as well. How many people finish a movie like Tenet and then immediately, credits have not even rolled. Like, Tenet is over, you're sitting there in your bedroom and you're like, I gotta get my phone out and, and see what the end of this movie means. <laughs> and, you, you have thought about it for not even two seconds And you're already googling What does the end of tenant mean I do this so often with films Like you finish watching it And you're immediately like what does it mean Let me find out And then you do and then you don't ever need to think about it again Now whatever you find Whatever you find on the other end Of a Google search <laughs> Can't Really Move you It can't benefit you all that much It's more likely Like googling what does the end of Tenant mean Is more likely to end Any contemplation of that film That you that you could have otherwise engaged in Than it is to lead to anything deeper Googling what does the end of Tenant mean <laughs> The end of Tenet Explained How many thousand articles there are about That sort of thing The end of Lost Explained The end of Blank Explained What does the end of Tenet mean? You're not going to get deeper into that movie by reading even a decent article on the end of Tenet. Explained. Forget it. Don't outsource contemplation. I'm not not encouraging you to be original here. Just be quiet and don't outsource contemplation. If you if you immediately look up when you're done with Tenet, what was the end of Tenet about? The answer you get is not... It might be thoughtful for someone else, but it's not going to induce thoughtfulness in you. It's not going to move you. Like The moving is done in the silence that follows it. Now, as, as big a fan of church fathers as I am, as big a proponent of old books of theology as I am, if you finish reading the book of Revelation for the first time... I would not recommend Googling, what does the end of the book of Revelation mean? End of Revelation explained. Wait, wait. Suffer not knowing for a little while. And see what good that suffering does.